Follow Without Warning Podcast Season 3, Investigation Derailed with Sheila Waisaki on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Without Warning Podcast presents Season 3, Investigation Derailed. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Waisaki and examine a major injustice. Warning, the following episode contains elements that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Aaron Major went to the Berkeley County Sheriff's Office eight days after Katie, River, and Aiden were found dead. Jerry Merrithew was the detective in charge of asking Aaron questions. Without Warning Podcast is looking at the investigation, good, bad, or ugly. What happened or what didn't happen? Was the interview a fact-finding interview? Did Detective Merrithew ask the necessary questions needed to develop leads? Brandon Perrin is a nationally recognized and award-winning professional licensed private investigator, criminal justice trainer, motivational speaker, and consultant. Brandon earned his BS degree in criminal justice from Columbia Southern University and is a graduate of the United States Air Force Security Police Academy and the United States Army Military Police Investigator School, as well as numerous advanced criminal investigation training programs. Brandon was named one of the top 10 private investigation leaders in the United States by PI Magazine and has qualified by the courts as an expert in criminal investigation. I called Brandon to review Aaron Major's interview with the Berkeley County Sheriff's Department. You will hear Brandon talk about techniques, body language, and what Aaron was really telling us. My name is Brandon Perrin, and I'm the owner of Investigative Support Specialist Incorporated, a Florida Regional Private Investigation Agency that specializes in criminal investigation, consulting, and expert uh, witness testimony. I'm also the National Director of the Criminal Defense Investigation Training Council, and we are the leading provider of criminal defense investigation curriculum and certification. We have certified over 500 board-certified criminal defense investigators across the United States and actually North America. We serve the federal public defender system, state public defender system, some of the top investigators and private investigators in the United States for both board certification and forensic interviewing, yourself included, Sheila. And we also provide training to the United States military, Department of Defense, to the United States Marine Corps, and the United States Army, who we have currently in train, uh, enrolled in training right now. We've been training them for years in best practices, methodology, and philosophy of investigation. Now, do you only do defense it is my specialty, it's my expertise, but I am in no way, shape, or form a one-trick pony. Um, but I do believe I'm, I, there's a term I've always, I learned a long time ago when I was a rookie, so to speak, and a mentor of mine told me, don't just be a jack of all trades. He goes, be a jack of all trades, but a master of one. And so criminal defense investigation, criminal investigation specifically is my expertise. I enjoy anything regarding the training. I have a passion for it. 
because I'm a methodologist. I believe that our profession demands, which historically it was missing, a methodology and a philosophy to what we do. And so what I did was develop the component method of investigation to provide that. That methodology is can be used and adapted not only the criminal defense investigation. It works very well, for instance, when you're reviewing past cases, whether it be post-conviction relief, innocence projects, or cold cases. It works perfectly for those because it allows you a best practices model to see if it was done correctly in the past, the prior investigators, and you can use it to conduct a parallel new investigation to make sure you develop new leads and follow up on leads that the prior investigators may have missed. Why did you pick defense? The underdog. I spent a lot of time as an Air Force investigator, criminal investigator for the United States Air Force, in many ways in the same lane as a friend of mine, a friend of yours, Mark Gillespie. Um, he would have been my commander if we worked at the same time. <laughs> I would have loved to work for the guy, you know. <laughs> but I, I picked criminal defense. And it's an interesting story because I worked on a case that I was very proud of when I was uh, conducting investigations for the Air Force. And at the end of the day, I was able to build a case. In a lot of ways, it was circumstantial. But the jury uh, found that it was enough to convict. It was overturned on appeal. And he was found innocent. And I'll never forget the day that that career Air Force veteran came to me and said he forgave me. And I was a young investigator. He said, I know you're just doing your job. He goes, but circumstances are circumstances and they're not always as they appear. And he was innocent, but the facts were manipulated in a way. They're put in a way. The lawyers take it and put it in a way. And it was able to convince through a narrative, not necessarily the facts, but through a narrative that he was guilty. And I really took it personal at that point. And I said, you know, it made me step up my game and made me cross my T's, dot my I's, it made me really learn that an investigator must be impartial and objective, and we can't bring personal biases uh, to the case. I become very, I, I want investigators to pursue the truth. I want them to fight for the truth, to fight for the facts, be diligent in their uncovering of facts, but I want them to be very careful. I'm always alarmed when I hear, and I correct them when I hear them say, I believe or I think, and I say, I don't care what you believe or what you think. I want to know what you can prove. What do the facts show? Conduct a, a, a fact-driven investigation and put your personal biases and opinions in check. Even though they may, don't ignore them. Don't ignore your hunches. Don't ignore your instincts. But see if you can develop those instincts and hunches into theories. And those theories can be supported as facts. Consider them an hypothesis. And your job as the investigator is either to prove or disprove the hypothesis and then move on. And so I, I really try to take that to the equation when I train investigators. And that's the biggest hurdle for many, is the, the personal, because we're, we're built that way, we're, we're, we're raised that way, you know? And some of the best investigators are very opinionated people, which also means that's the part I have to put in check. <laughs> it depends on where you are and who you're, who you're doing this for. If you are in a, uh, if you're in a position, the great thing about being a private investigator is that as a private investigator, you have the freedom to make that choice. You do. You may be working on, beh on behalf of uh, a victim's family. You may be working on behalf of a, uh, a uh, person who's wrongfully accused family. You may be working on behalf of them, or it could be you're working on behalf of a cause where the victims are deceased now, and you're their advocate. You become that advocate. But you also have to recognize that you can do that. But in the eyes of the law, when you testify, you will be stripped of it. You will be, you, you will be exposed for it. And so I, I don't, 
I don't oppose that position if that's the position you openly take. I'm an advocate of this. But if you're taking that position, then claiming to be an impartial and objective advocate of truth, don't go there. You know? <laughs> don't go there. So just be honest mm-hmm. with yourself and your position. So when you, if you're going to be in a position of possibly testifying, it's like a lawyer trick. And they'll ask you, if you say you're impartial objective in your methodology of investigation and in, in your recovery of facts and ultimate conclusion, and then you say, well, do you believe they're guilty? He goes, I believe they are. Aha! You're not impartial objective. And when did you come? You, you know, so it's a, it's a catch-21. And I'm just, I'm very cognizant. I'm very aware of it. And that's why I just like to train the people who train with me. I just try to get them to understand that's, there's such nuance to what we do, right? There's such right. nuance to it. Not only nuance to our approaches and to our concepts and ideas, but you know, when I one of the first things I I train with uh, investigators and many in, of your own students who you graciously sent to me and trusted me to put them through boot camp, and I do appreciate that, is that I try to teach them that is there a difference between absolute truth and relative truth? You must be remain objective and impartial and and, and just look at the facts, let the facts speak for themselves. So, can the evidence you uncovered, Sheila, in a case? Can it stand on its own and be revealed and convince anyone else that that person is guilty or not guilty? If you did, your comment of, I believe they did it, is relevant because the evidence speaks for itself. That, that, that's, so that's the nuanced position. So I don't, I don't always, as, a, as even a former student of mine, I mean... I mean, you're always looking for a fight, but <laughs> I know, I know, I can't help it. I always want to. We always you. we agree. We actually agree on all of it. It's just I, I like to put things in perspective, bro. So you know where you come, where where, do you, where are we coming from with that, and then I'll go, yeah, absolutely. So I do agree with that. That's my long-winded freaking answer to that. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. I need to take the position of the evidence shows it. The evidence speaks for it. That's but you do. You, you do. I you believe. do. Yeah, you so, do. I, you, uh, you know, I would say that you, you, from my experiences with you, training with you, you, you get hunches, you get instincts, you develop theories, you pursue those theories, you uncover your facts, and then once you uncover the facts, you come to a conclusion based upon the evidence. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, as long as they take the Sheila path, okay? Right, right. Not everybody does that, and you know it. You, you, they well, start believing they're guilty or innocent, and then they pursue a path that only uncovers evidence to support their existing belief. Right. They ignore the evidence. Yes. They look just for what their narrative is. No, I agree with you. We don't do that. But once I'm certain of the evidence, as certain as anybody can be, because there's no 100%, as you and I know. Yes. Then, I'm glad uh, you added that. That's yeah. so important to add in. We have yeah. to be humbled that we are human beings and we suffer from the human condition and we are as flawed as can be. <laughs> I am incredibly flawed as, as we all know. First thing uh, I asked you to do is I brought you in because I don't think there's anybody better looking at interviews. And so I wanted you to look at an interview in a case I'm looking at right now. It's an interesting interview, to say the least. Yes. 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 How about flawed? (laughs) Holy cow, flawed, yes. First of all, it's Aaron Major. He's interviewed by a detective at Berkeley County. What did you do first? Well, I I have 
seven pages of <laughs> of notes. <laughs> okay, and you only you watched me to subject it to analysis. <laughs> okay, and you know what happens to my brain when you do that. First of all, just a few things. I, I can just go through the my thoughts, what I noticed, and just interject it. Please, anytime, stop me, Covert. This is you. you know, I'm. I'm going to function just as a, an expert would in any situation and give you my thoughts, but please ask me questions along the way. Initially, what I noticed is the first thing I noticed was that they had him sitting there for over seven minutes minimum as the recording's going. I'm not sure what the purpose of all that is. That's, that's designed. Law enforcement has this old school bad habit, I call it. And I'm speaking of prior law enforcement. This bad habit of thinking they can make them sit in there and sweat. You know, Some of it, if it's used to observe them, independently before going in it's a great thing um but it's you know i'm not sure what the purpose was so i hope it had a purpose but based upon what i've seen after contact i would say it did not it was just they weren't ready they were you know i don't know the seating arrangements terrible terrible horrible just completely inconsistent with any training i've ever seen he's sitting in that one hard chair which has you know off and he's facing another direction. The detective comes in and sits down in a nice comfy chair like he's going to settle in for the night and watch a movie on Netflix. It was ridiculous. I mean, I don't think he, I don't think he, if he had a, uh, a Fitbit on, I don't think the detective would have generated five steps the entire um, interview for movement is concerned, you know? So I was really disappointed with that. Detective comfortable, suspect in a, in a lowered, more uncomfortable position, oddly positioned. It was just an awkward arrangement and not it didn't facilitate the interview process. You know, it really didn't. We've, you've gone through, you're a forensic interviewer, and we went extensively how someone should be seated, where should be seated. And it matters, right? Absolutely. It matters, it matters to influence, to control, to give them room, close in when you don't want them to have the room, to make a point. None of that was present. So that was the first thing. Of course, that's, I didn't like it, but then he opened up questioning with the open-ended question, which is okay. Tell me, you know, what about it. But he just let the narrative go on and on. What we talk about in interviewing, specifically forensic interviewing, is that the interview must at all times maintain the initiative, right? Which means you control the interview. The detective did not control that interview. He, it was like a free-for-all. He just let, he let, you know, Aaron Major just talk the way he wanted to, discuss what he wanted to, go where he wanted to. I mean, did he ask even more than a dozen questions the entire process? Nothing, nothing, no, right? No. I mean, it was, and they weren't there. relevant. They weren't relevant starting out. I mean, okay, how'd you meet? Well, okay, yeah, and that's that's, and I don't, I don't disagree with that start. Now, what we would use that for, I mean, you is we would use that. Let me see. Let him talk about something he should be honest about. Something that should come clearly from his own memory. Right? We can identify his baseline of honest communication, right? This is how he speaks. This is how he sits. This is his tone. This is his angle, his view, his eye contact, lack of eye contact. When he's telling something where he has no reason to lie. But I'm, I didn't see anything on the part of the detective that would suggest he was actually actively engaging or monitoring this type of behavior. It didn't seem like he was paying attention to No, he, he showed no interest. Right. Almost Zero, nothing to say, okay, you know, kind of prompt him to talk or engage or do anything. Um, it was, it was the lack of engagement by detective was, you know, when he should be a facilitator was, you know, it was, it was just lazy for lack of a better word. It was, it was lazy, you know, walked in, let's just do this as opposed to, you know, we spoke about it in our forensic interview program. 
And when you walk in that interview, you're prepared. You know your case, right? And you're prepared for intellectual combat because that's what it is, right? It's intellectual combat. You've got to go in there and win. And you, it's, it's like a boxing match, you know? And one's coming out the winner. And in this particular interview, Aaron Major came out the winner. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, it wasn't even, it was, it wasn't, it was a knockout punch. It wasn't even uh, by points. It was terrible because Detective just did not step up. He didn't train for it, didn't prepare for it. He went into this fight out of shape, not prepared, and just showed up. And that's it. And thought it went, something good would happen from it. Um, no effort by the detective at all to um, lower the stress level, which, even, you know, if you walk in there and objectively try to say, okay, even if you're going to try to clear your mind of any suspicions, even though you have them, they're really there to say, what if I got to be careful not, it's like going to a funeral, right? Some people are crying, some people are laughing, some, so you got to keep it open-minded. I don't know how this guy is going to behave, what his emotional state is going to be. So what I'm going to do is try to lower the stress. Like, you know, I want to, I, I recognize he may be a little afraid, he may be nervous, who knows? So you've got, he did nothing to lower the stress, nothing to engage him to make him feel comfortable because it's that old school thought process. If they're uptight, if they're guarded, then I can get a confession. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You only speak freely and make mistakes when your guard is down, when you feel like you're in a friendly environment. And I can, I, you know, I want the suspect, the subject, whoever I'm speaking to, to believe they're beating me. I want them to believe they've won me over and I'm there and like, oh, I know, you know, this is a terrible situation. I understand you're nervous. I want them to believe it, right? right. I'm going to, I'm going to pull the, you know, I'm going to pull a Sugar Ray Leonard on him at some point. It's not going to be, you know, I'm going to be doing the swinging, but I need to see what he's got. He's willing, he's willing to cooperate. But he didn't seem to know the case. No, no. Do you see when he kept looking at his cell phone? That was driving me crazy. <laughs> When you said not engaged, he was engaged to his phone. <laughs> I know, right? It what? would go off, and I'd be like, you're not going to look at it, are you? He did. Uh, one of the things, and, and just to go into more of the forensics, so when you consider kinesic interviewing techniques, um, kinesic interviewing techniques for any of your audience, they probably know you have an educated audience, is uh, interpretation of nonverbal communication, body language, expressions, lack of expression, tone of voice, et cetera, et cetera. Everything but... The actual words, it's all the things that we use to communicate. I did notice that it was his baseline of, of what appeared to be non-deceptive communication became very clear very early. And it was based upon the way he was seated. If you notice that throughout, when he, when he was comfortable with communicating certain details that were, appeared to be coming from memory, he would turn more to the right. He would look down. Okay. And he would always look down and communicate when he was uncomfortable and he was asked to, you know, asked to come up with ideas. He was caught off guard a lot. Some of the things that were asked, if he was like, the detective didn't take advantage of, the, of when you clearly noticed, if he asked him a question that uh, the suspect wasn't prepared for, he became very unnerved. He became, uh, uh, and he would always turn to the right, lean more there, his leg would cross. Consistently, not every time, consistently. So when he was seen to be searching for answers, struggling with an answer, trying to come up with something, because everybody who has a story and needs a story walks in with a story, right? Right. And the, our, our attack method for 
punching holes in the story, the one weapon we have at our advantage always is a question is a weapon. So when they tell us a story, the more questions we ask, the more lies they have to come up with. And they have to come up with them like that. Lies are generated from the inside out. So a lie is built just enough to deal with what threat they think is coming at them. So the more questions the investigator asks, it makes them expand the lie and it starts to fall apart. The inconsistencies come together. And, they, and then when you ask them again, they can't remember because it didn't really happen. There's no memory of the, of the lie they just generated. All they, they have to try to remember the lie they made. And it's, it's very hard to do, you know, unless you're a psychopath. <laughs> he had trouble expanding details to support the narrative he was trying to get the detective to uh, buy into, basically. And that narrative was always, you, you can almost tell where, you, you can see where the holes in the story were in respect to what appeared to be, because even lies, understand these, even, even deception is built upon fragments, pillars of truth. Right. right? It's there. But you could see where the extension of the bridge was being built because it was slow. It was a struggle. It was, uh, well, a lot of I don't know, I'm not sure. And some of those I don't know, I don't know sure questions, they should have been simple answers. Yet it's a detail he couldn't answer because he wasn't prepared for that particular question. So it's interesting. It's limited a number of questions as there were. When you're talking about his body language, he would cover his mouth with his broken hand. With the, yeah, with the brace. Yes. And so when he was asked something a little more difficult, did you did it appear that way to you or did you notice it, that? It, yes, and you can't look at it as black and white. It was the, I found there was a consistency in that, but it's never nothing in kinesic interviewing is 100%. You sure. know? Because if someone has a tendency to do that out of, because he was very defensive from day one with the, with the body was all closed up mm. and away, then it would move in. It, would, it was doing a lot of that. But when someone is behaving in that situation, you have to remember, even if they go to that as a defensive um, move, you know, and all defensive moves, you have to first, as an interview, identify, is this defensive move caused by certain stimuli? The stimuli would be questions that are threatening because fight or flight kicks in. A question is like someone picking up a hammer and coming at you. That hammer, you believe someone's going to hit you with that hammer, it's going to injure you, you defend yourself. If you believe someone's coming at you with a question, your body, your reaction naturally defends itself. It protects itself against any threat, whether it be psychological, emotional, or actual physical. So fight or flight doesn't limit itself to a, a, a person with a, with a hammer. It comes in all kinds of threats. We react to uh, what we perceive as a threat. So it's always important to watch that in any subject to see which questions appear more threatening to him, which questions appear that they, oh, this, this could expose me, this could reveal me, I'm afraid of this, because he knows it's coming. And that's why the fear's there. But the biggest question did not come. No. What happened to your hand? How did it happen? And when did it happen? So many, when that was a key part of that case in day one from the victim's mom. I mean, that should have been part of the preparation and questioning. Remember one of the things we talked about, an investigator will prepare their questions, not a script, not a script, but their questions in advance. These are questions they know they want to ask. They will know those questions. They'll go in there, use them. They don't have to refer to their notes to ask the questions. 
and it'll all be there. That way, at the end, when he before he goes for the kill or before he goes for the for the juggling shot, you know, let me see. I have a few more things. Oh yes, and you use you use your prepared questions as a checklist, and you check them off. That way, everything's covered at the end. You know, right? Everything's covered. Did you see anything with the, he was? It was just, right? It was, it was, it was bizarre. Yeah. It was bizarre from a professional perspective. But you know what, Sheila? That's a standard. That's a, that is what you see out there. That's what you see out there is the, is, um, you know, interviews, interrogations. Uh, and those are interrogations, which of course are very important. Can you imagine how many interviews are failed when we're interviewing victims, interviewing eyewitnesses? Those are not recorded. Right. There, there, there's so much that we're not sure of, of what's missing. Anybody can write a report and make it look like they're doing the job. But, you know, the, the, the proof is in the details. You know, it really is. Well, and lucky that was videotaped. Otherwise, what would we have known? We would have gotten a report that said, I did this. This is what he said. He appeared to be honest. Yeah. One of the most, which, by the way, even this department, OK, which, of course, You've questioned uh, its its uh, capabilities, tactics, procedures. They still do more than the FBI does when it comes to interviewing a, any witnesses or, or suspects, and that is video recorded. So I'm going to make wow. that point out. You know, <laughs> they still don't do it. You know, it's all based on memos and what they. If you have to rely on what the agent said. That's what happened. And it's just, you know, human beings are infallible. You know, one of the things that stood out the most for me, though, how emotionally detached, and, and I don't only mean that from the interview. He was emotionally detached from the interview, obviously. Right. But emotionally attached from the death of his wife. Tragedy. There was zero, zero um, emotional and and, and, uh, every step of the way. Nothing, nothing. Even the even the final line of questioning, which was should have to me would have been raised to me. I would have been reaching out and, and, and striking an officer. How dare you think I could have done something like that? You know, right. It was just when, when, and, and even and I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Even when he asked him the question, did you love your wife? Did you love? It was like, yeah, you know, it was I mean, you're speaking about your deceased wife right now and you can't even drum up any emotion or passion for the for the memory of what you just lost. That's bizarre to me. The little baby river just talking about her injuries and he says no tears none and says uh, she was drowned or she didn't have any markings on her do you know i still on my cases of the pictures i've seen of victims when i refer to them i still cry that is your daughter oh my i couldn't imagine i'm 55 years old i have three kids 28 26 i still the one thing it was the only thing that can make me tear up is my kids. Yeah. Talking about positive things about my kids, I turn into a marshmallow. It's ridiculous. It's embarrassing. <laughs> you know, it, it, it really is. It's like strip the Spartan of his armor and, and you're a big baby because when it comes to your kids, as an investigator, as an interviewer, you have to recognize that. Then you have to explore that to make sure is this an emotional response of shutting down to such a situation or is this just a cold-blooded psychopath who just, you know, who cannot, it, it has an inability to, remember, you know, psychopaths have the inability to feign empathy. They can't even feign, they can't even, sociopaths can, you know, but psychopaths can't even pretend to have empathy. It's just so, it, it, as an investigator, you have to recognize these 
these alerts and then you have to try to eliminate them, not make a, you know, make a judgment of this is a problem. Now let me figure out what the cause of this problem is, you know? And, and I didn't see any of that. No, just those signals were completely ignored, just left to go by, you know, I, I don't understand it. When he was asking him up about the, uh, talk about what happened to his wife and his daughter, it was no, the same, he turned to, again, he turns right and just, there was no emotion to it. It was just, it was, it was crazy. Uh, he shifted his seating positions often based on the topic. That's a signal to you that you look for the pattern. All the points he had trouble with where you should focus the interview, he always changed his seating position in the way he sat and shifted to the left. And it was always those areas consistently is where he had problems with that line of question. He would go this way. When he was easier for him to talk, he would go this way. Now, sometimes you get caught in that position off guard and he had to stay in it. But fundamentally, there is a pattern. And patterns aren't 100%, right? They're their patterns. So you, you, you look for it. It takes work. You know, I know you, do, you a lot of your investigators that you train stuff and you mentor, they, they have to remember when you watch videos like this, when you look at evidence, you've really got to focus. You've got to just look for patterns. You have to watch it again and again and again and again, you know, and, uh, and, and, and leave out, I think, I believe, and just say, Hey, you know, look, I got this, I got this, I got this, I got right. this, this is an issue. Right. When you said that the investigator or detective should have noticed the pattern, because I knew I was talking to you, normally I watch Aaron, but I was watching the interviewer. He didn't move. He didn't. He was like having a beer, sitting back and just waiting for it to look like Aki Bunker in his easy chair watching television. <laughs> exactly. That I was fascinated today. This is the first day I ever really concentrated on him as an investigator, as a trainer and coach and mentor. That is not a position you would recommend, correct? No, no. you have to show interest. You have to you have to engage. You have to have a you have to have some eye contact. You have to you have to you have to be in their orbit, and you have to force them to engage you. You have to give them room with areas. You have you have to show interest. You know, interrogation, interviewing, they really are fundamentally the same thing, and the approaches should be the same. If I could, I don't know what that was, quite honest with you. It's I wouldn't even call it a professional interview or interrogation from an expert's perspective. I just wouldn't do it. Um, just because of lack of methodology that was observed. That's my professional opinion on that. You know, it may work for the guy. I don't know. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know anything about him or history or anything like that. And I really want to say in perspective, I don't know him personally. I'm speaking strictly professionally. Could be a very nice man. I don't know. I, and I always keep that separate. Some people I love. I think they, they, they walk on water professionally, but they're the biggest jerk I've ever met in my life personally. And then sometimes vice versa, you know, right. like I love them, but boy, they're useless as an investigator. You know? right. So I always try to step, I'm not looking at this person uh, personally at all, professionally. And I, I didn't see any professional standards being deployed in that entire interview at all. I just, I didn't see it. And, uh, you know, it was very, I don't know. It was, I don't, you know, it was almost like uh, his pastor came in to talk to him and take, uh, you know, and, Look more like a, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Like a counseling session. <laughs> How do you no. feel? You know, some investigators, law enforcement personnel, detectives, they will take an emotional position by stating, go easy on him. He just lost his family. Maybe that's part of the equation, which is, you know, my position as an investigator, whether I was on the law enforcement side, I'm on a defense side or I'm working on the private side for either side, which I do both now. I can work on the victim side. I can work, it doesn't matter. I like 
that keeps me sane and it keeps me more balanced and it keeps me objective. But when someone says that to me, I would say, I don't know what you mean by that. I'm going to take a pro- professional approach to this. There, was a de- there were two deaths, tragic deaths, under questionable circumstances, and I'm going to investigate. You know, there is no easing going. I'm not going to be, a, I'm not his priest. I'm not his therapist. I'm not his dad. You know, I'm here to get to the truth of this. So back off. <laughs> as far exactly. as that's concerned, you know, right? What, what, what is it? Can you imagine? I, I know that bothers you because you, what does it even mean? You go easy. Well, and, you know, I always say, who is there for the victim? Who went easy on the victim? Let's just get to the truth. Don't do all this manipulating the evidence or manipulating the interview. To me, that's an ultimate manipulation. Absolutely. When you go into that, and, and when, you know, and again, it's a matter of the all law enforcement officers, detectives, when they conduct an investigation, the philosophy should be that they're con- conducting an investigation to determine, first and foremost, if, if a crime was committed. That's one. Then two, if it was committed, who committed the crime? And that who needs to be supported by evidence so that evidence leads to the crime. So there is no easy there. The victim deserves 100% investigation, and anyone who's suspected of the crime deserves 100% investigation. It's called due process. And it's, it's embedded in our system, and it should be embedded in our minds when we're conducting investigations. So I, I'd be offended by a comment of go easy. You know, it's like I would question their motive for it. And I, go, and I would ask not only I would say, why do you say that to me? Why go easy? It's because of the way he looks or you, you're actually feeling sorry for him. I says, you know, I feel sorry for for him. But I feel more sorry for the people who are are deceased. Right. You know, right now. Well, and they gave him eight days. That was done eight days after her death. That is um an interesting fact mm-hmm. for me, because that explains a lot of the uh, emotional state of the behaviors. It was, it just seemed so, he was trying, it seemed someone who exhibits that type of behavior to me appears, they, they appear to be exhibiting a controlled behavior. They're, they're overdoing it. To, they're overdoing their control don't, to not be this, not be that. And people tend to think they have an idea of what they think innocent looks like. And unfortunately, innocent looks genuine and genuine is a different look on each of us. When you look at both of, of, of the victims, it was, uh, you know, uh, Katie Ann River, they're, they're just, they're beautiful people. And, wow. and even his, Katie was a uh, very, very uh, a pretty woman. And I just wonder, was she, did she, was she so attracted to such a dud? <laughs> if that's the case, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I know it's a, it's a high school situations and stuff like that are tough because people are young and they evolve into something else. And, and, you know, that becomes a problem, but so much more to know. So even everything I'm saying right now is, is based on very limited focus on this interview alone. Like you have so much more knowledge about this case than me. And you're able to put other pictures. So I'm staying, you know, my favorite saying, I'm staying in my lane. Yeah, I like that. And that's, I did this, I didn't want to tell you anything beforehand. And I appreciate that. It's, it's the, I wish, you know, that's where you, I'm always usually having to tell people, no, 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 don't send me that. Don't send me that. You know, I don't want to know anything when I go in. I want to, and it's interesting that my, the opinions that I was basically forming based upon my observations are consistent with, 
with what you have, are you what I know now you have stated and what other people have stated, including uh, the victim's mother regarding situations, you know. So and I just don't know why that wasn't being picked up from the law enforcement, uh, you know, agents at the time uh, where it should have drew leads. Uh, suspicions uh, were evident during that interview and those those suspicions should have turned into leads. Right. But instead they dropped it. Yeah, they just that, and that's what doesn't make sense. There's something behind, you know, something going on behind the scenes. There, something from a political perspective, or something from the command that came down. And I know any law enforcement officer or detective will tell you there's positions where politics come into play, right? And, uh, and files are taking away from you, and they said close it with no explanation, you know. And uh, you start dealing with some of the uh, older detectives and officers too, and it becomes a question of do I fight back or lose my retirement? It becomes a uh, Right. Why well, I like and, being independent. Yes. I have no more masters, you know? It's, it's, uh, I work for the government, you know? I work with the government now. It's a difference. Mm-hmm. I work as a consultant. I work as a contractor. I work in, you know, in many positions with them, but I, there's no W-2 form coming for me from the government because once there is, you know? You're obligated. I think that there were people making a decision that did not do right by the investigation, Katie or River. And there are people in the community that have reached out and given us information. And one of the reasons I wanted you to look at this is I want a perspective outside of me looking at it. Well, my expert opinion from what I've seen on this video is clearly, I, of course, can't say whether someone's guilty or not guilty. Right. Of course, I can't. But what I can say is based upon, you know, forensic interviewing techniques that are proven and tried. Uh, there's no question that multiple points exhibited signs of of potential deception. They were never explored to identify if they if they were or were not. They were never pursued to either support or dismiss. They were just left open and never and never nothing was done with them. And so that was it. You know, one of the one of the things that really um, was interesting at the end toward the end. I want to point because it stood out to me. The, of course, the zero response, but. Um, when he was actually questioned and, and it was asked, of, did you have anything to do with your wife's death, your child's death? The zero emotional response from that was fascinating. Um, and he didn't appear, did you notice, he wasn't shocked by the question. Like so, he knew it was coming. Yeah. And his, his, and it's almost like in some people in those positions will take a position, I'm prepared for it. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to be, oh no. Then who? Nobody. Who does that? You know, I, I would fight back. I would jump all over that. I would defend myself because that is my child. Yes. I would never want anything in or anybody to harm my child. The objective of that law enforcement interview becomes clear at the end. Yes. When the detective asked the question, did you have anything to do with your wife's death or child's death? That is not the end of the interrogation. That should be the beginning of the interrogation. Okay? That's when you kind of hit the watermark. But that, and you can always tell, that was the closing statement. The, the, the objective was to get him to say no. Right. And then it's like, okay. And one of the things that was funny, though, when he asked the question, the subject of, of this particular interview Immediately he said, no, controlled, controlled, right? Almost didn't say anything. 
and then nuanced directly into an alternative narrative, which completely blamed right. Katie for the death of the daughter. And it became, it's her. She did this. She did this. And even, I even, and that was, that's the part. But it was done without motion, without passion. It was, it was just a defensive move. It was, a, it was a, a parry in a, in a fight, you know, as a block. It was just, let's distract you over here and talk about this now. And it's kind of like you see that often. A uh, little, little interesting thing I learned doing uh, sex crimes, major sex crimes. When you interview a suspected rapist, I've always found it in my career, my, my experience, that when I interview a, uh, a person who's suspected of a sex crime and being a, uh, a rapist, a sexual abuser, they always opt to blame the victim. When given the opportunity, why do you think they would make up a story like this? They will always go down the gutter path. They will deface them. They will uh, call them names. They will do everything they can to paint a bad picture. And every case I've had where they were, where innocence was really supported, when you ask the question, they go, I don't know. They seem like, and since generally they say, I don't know why they would do this. I thought we had a good relationship. I really don't know. They almost seem hurt by the by the allegation, by the offense, where the other one's like, oh, I've been waiting for the opportunity to tell you what a, a, a scarlet they are and what a, you know? And and here he jumped on them both. Right. To, to paint the negative picture, you know? At the end, we have to support it with facts, support it with evidence. In a case like this, you have to support it with a confession. But what was missed here is that no time was a confession pursued. At no time did an interrogation take place, ever. It never happened. Opportunity after opportunity was presented to the detective to to advance the the advance the interrogation to advance the truth fact and fact gathering process. Never taken advantage of it. Never done. Just you know, you're right, and I agree 100. percent It's almost as if because I can't say, but it, it it almost to me it appears like the objective was known before it started. Right. And, the, and that really is defined to me by the last question was the most important, the last question, and it basically ended shortly after that. Like, okay, and thank you. We got it then. We're done. Oh, beautiful. Of course you didn't, you didn't do it. Okay, we're done. And let's that go have be. coffee. Yeah, that right. was my favorite thing. I, I'm, I'm ready for I need some coffee. coffee. How about you? Yeah. you, know? you want some? I want the hallway surveillance video. I want the hallway where the hands, is the hand being shaken or you did a good job? Is there a... You know, that you did good. And, it. you know, that's what you love about our time now is everything has a camera, you know, right. and you can see the the after effects, you know, of things that often what went on before and what went on after are often very telling about what happened during, you know. Um, so do you do you think that there were other detectives watching it and texting him? Because that's what I originally thought. Well, one tried to, somebody tried to get in the door. And it was stopped. So that could have been someone saying, oh, what's going on? And it could have been, definitely could have been a text asking questions. There's no question about that. I mean, when I was an Air Force investigator and did, and did interrogations constantly, as was primary what I did there, we had the classic interrogation with the two-way mirror. Right. And at all times, there'd be two of us behind the mirror. And we were even looking for cues and clues where we would join to uh, advance uh, the progress and take the whether it's good cop, bad cop thing, that all stuff really plays. And, 
Now, the, you know, and how many investigators they have in this department? I'm, I'm not familiar with There's, It's a small department. I think there were about four on that case that day, maybe five. So no reason whatsoever for another, for the team approach to be taken, for another more aggressive detective to come in, maybe at that moment when, these, when he asked the tough questions. That's where I would have had, I, if I was working that case with the other detective, I said, okay, I'm going to come in here. Right. And I'm going to say, I just want to let you know, you know, I've been just, you, you, everything to be doing very well. You've been, you know, talking to detective so-and-so, but uh, I want to let you know that I've been watching this and I got some problems. I've got some problems with what you say and some problems with what you're not saying. And I, I just want you to reconcile these things, you know, and then really press it. And none of these are just standard tactics and techniques that are used by experienced, seasoned interviewers who have a defined objective. And, and that's what I'm, I'm not sure there was what that's. I don't know what the objective was here unless I would have to. I would lean towards your theory. I lean towards your theory. You know, I, it, it appears to be supported by the facts and what you see take place. It really does. In the interview, when they were talking about Katie and her becoming anxious and, you know, she's worried about being stalked. He didn't go into it saying, wait a minute you're worried about your wife being stalked and you go up to take a shower. How long were you? He didn't get the details of that. He's never worried about anything. He was so casual about everything. It was so, it was just, I don't know. It was just even, even that, that's one of the areas and topics that almost seemed, you know, when I see something like that, it's just giving me, I'm I'm developing, you know, a suspicion and I need to develop leads to pursue that line of questioning that you appear, it appears contrived. Right. It, it just appears like you're trying to add, you're going out of your way to add that she's crazy and that supports the narrative of the murder-suicide, uh, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And that she drowned her own child or killed her child and threw herself in front of a train. It's like because she was crazy. and But yet, where's all this evidence of crazy? Where is this? This is not something that happens like that. Right. And, and even the whole 9-11 things like that's almost coming from a movie or something. That was the that was the that was the uh, crazy du jour of the time. And, you know, it, it really was, it, you know, now it would be the pandemic. You know, it's, right. <laughs> they all jump on bandwagons. You know, yeah. what's what's on the what was the press delivering, you know, and at, at the moment. How would you have followed up with that kind of an interview? Well, right now, I'm assuming that was a non-custodial interview, correct? He was invited in. He was invited in and no rights advisement. No. Yeah. Yeah, No, I was trying to remember no attorney. He was invited in. So it's not Uh, custodial, which means days. It was eight days later. And I was trying to think there was one other thing. I think his parents were there. Okay. I would have, after this, what appeared to be a non-custodial interview. So it was done as more of exploratory. I I would have, even if I I would, I would have been much more aggressive. And if I always take the position of I have in front of me, I'm going to take advantage of it as long as I want to stay. Okay. The point happens though, is if it was non-custodial and he didn't, he didn't advise him his rights. He was taking the position of a nonchalant way. Once he started asking those questions and he was going to move the interrogation into that, you're a suspect. Now he would have had to advise him of his rights. He could have feared that he was shut down. He didn't develop the relationship and didn't appear to plan to develop the relationship where he got him wanting to talk. Cause with the idea of with any suspect is you've, First and foremost, got to get them to want to speak to you, want to tell your story. And then you get them to the point where they want to. So by the time they are, you're at a point where they need to tell you, they need to, you need to advise them of their rights. 
they're more likely to waive their right to counsel if they want to talk, if they don't feel threatened by you anymore, they don't feel, you know, so that's once, once you get the right to advisement out of the way and you have them there, you can be more aggressive with that suspect. But that bridge didn't happen. That turn never took place. And even if it didn't there, if I was a detective in a case where I was a commander in that case, I would have looked at that and said, okay, he needs to come back in here. You know, we need to bring him back in here. And these, we need to reconcile these facts, reconcile these issues, these concerns, you know, we need to go after that. And, and it's not a bad idea, but did they ever interview, interview him again? No. Oh yeah. See, that's, 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 they just closed it. Right. You know, right. They, they, it's easy to rule it. Murder, suicide, so easy to rule because you don't have to do any more investigation. Oh, gone. Right. Case solved. Right. And you know? they didn't, they didn't count on the mom pursuing it as hard as she has. And they were you. Or you <laughs> definitely didn't count on that. So, and we're not even, we just started. I mean, it's going to get far bumpier. So as you know. Well, we have two flagship training programs through the uh, criminal defense investigation training council. And you can, they, anybody wants to go and look at it and go to CDITC training.com. So, or they can go to public defender investigator tra- uh, training.com or defense investigator training.com. I'll go to the same place, defense investigator.com. The two programs, I'll talk about the first one, which is the one we've had. That's the uh, component method of criminal defense investigation and case management. It's, oh, it's, it's a methodology for investigation, whether it be criminal defense, be criminal investigation. It's, it's designed for criminal defense and innocence projects, and you learn a lot, but it is uh, tailor-made for cold case investigation because it's a methodology because and just to go through the six components the first component of the process is the forensic case review analysis where you go through all discovery all police reports all documents all statements line by line page by page analysis we're not just merely reading them or analyzing from that we're identifying leads a lead is nothing more than a question to be asked for an investigator has to be performed that may or may have not been performed by the prior investigator or the original investigation we're also going to break down the information by fact. We're engaged in fact classification. We're going to identify facts that are, uh, and we always look at both sides. It's very important. So we're going to identify facts that are incriminating. We're going to identify facts that are uh, exculpatory. We're going to identify facts that are aggravators, which aggravators being it could have elevated the charge to a higher charge, a lower charge. You know, like for instance, in a battery case, if you punch me in the nose, it's a simple battery. But if you punch me in the nose and it breaks, it's an aggravated battery, you know, that elevated that charge. Uh, if you use a weapon on me or something like that, we're going to look for mitigating facts. Mitigating facts would be facts uh, that would also go to not only the question of guilt or innocence to, relative to charging, but they would go also to sentencing. Can someone get an appropriate sentence based upon mitigating factors in their life, you know, things that happened to them, et cetera. Then we also identify, we want to, the timeline is the investigator's best friend. Constructing a timeline is a necessity, it's a need, it's crucial, a primary component. And it's because law enforcement reports are are written and generated in the uh, generally in the chronological order of the investigation as it unfolded. You need to take all of those facts from those reports, and you need to put all of those facts in the chronological order of the event as it unfolded. And when you do that, and it grows, and you can plug and play new facts as you go through the investigation, the reality, the truth starts to come to light. The inconsistencies come to light. The discrepancies come to light. The uh, how can some person be here and there at the same time? This doesn't make sense. And so the timeline is a uh, just an awesome tool, you know. And of course, just using that, the next step, identify inconsistencies, discrepancies in the case, discrepancies from every source, including the investigation itself uh, and its and its players. 
identify all the characters, all the players. You said something to me a moment ago that is, is part of that process when you said you identified all these other witnesses who no one ever spoke to. Those are characters, those are players in this case. And lawyers and many investigators have a tendency to just drink the Kool-Aid and buy into the law enforcement narrative. So they believe that only the people who are identified by name and interviewed in a police report are relevant. Oh, no, no, no. Not only are they relevant, what about references to people that were never interviewed? What about references to some guy or I remember he was talking, there were a couple of people at the scene or or the the entire neighborhood when an incident happened to canvas an area to see if anybody else seen anything. Just, you know, limiting limiting to what you see there in their reports is, is really a mistake because most government agencies, including law enforcement, take a KISS approach, right? Keep it simple, stupid. Exactly. And unfortunately, the truth is complicated, right? It's complicated. It's extensive. It's, uh, it, it, can, it involves so many nuances to it. So that case review, the forensic case review and analysis is the first step. It develops, it builds a foundation of, of your investigation and it identifies all of the weaknesses and strengths with the initial investigation. Then we interview the subject, defendant, suspect. We try to get to them. Sometimes we can do it in person. We can talk to them. Sometimes we have to interview them the way we just did. Right. Do whatever historical recording and interview they already have of that. Because you may not have to ask additional questions, but you can identify additional information, additional leads that you can pursue. And then, of course, after that, when I've developed as much information from the original case, from I, I have full command of the facts. I've I understand where the subject is coming from, what they've said in the past or not said in the past, et cetera. I go to the crime scene and I conduct that crime scene investigation. First and foremost, I'm trying to place everyone, understand what they're claiming happened that day. Sometimes the scene itself, the critical features of the scene do not support the narrative. They just don't. And never, never underestimate the failure of the original investigation. I have found the instrument of death. I have found uh, damning material evidence at a scene years after it was over that was missed. It was missed. So you just, you really got to have a, 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 an understanding of when you go to that scene, it's a true, it's your, you're using physics, you're using reality, using critical features, you're using the, uh, the area, the layout of the area to really question the, the fluid, abstract evidence that's been presented, the narrative being presented. Then you conduct background investigations of all the potential witnesses in the party. See if there's anything in their history that would suggest they have an axe to grind, a certain way to go with the case or not go with the case. Then you're prepared to interview witnesses. A lot of investigators don't, they want to jump right to the fun stuff. I want to go interview witnesses. You need to be prepared with a full command of the facts before you interview witnesses. You know, because it is, again, it's intellectual combat. And we, we know what happens when you're not prepared for that combat. You look like this detective did in this video. You are, you're not in the game. You're not in the fight. You're not in the fight. And then, of course, so forensic case review analysis, subject defendant interviews, uh, crime scene inspection uh, and examination, and background investigations, witness interviews, uh, taking statements, generating reports, and then finally the report of investigation. And never, never uh, underestimate how important the report of investigation is. Some investigators are so good in the field and so bad at documenting results that no one will ever know they were good because their reports suck. <laughs> and it makes them look like they're bad. And it's not true all the time. It's just they don't know how to communicate. So our training in the component method of, of investigation and case management is designed to hone those skills Give, I, I say that when they take our training, I want to give you, you're going to earn a black belt in investigation. That's what you're going to do. 
you earn a black belt. People say, well, it's not the same. Hey, if you earn a black belt in investigation, you can earn a black belt in Taekwondo or karate or, or Kung Fu. Uh, it doesn't mean you've ever been in a fight in your life. It means you're ready for a fight. So you may have never conducted an investigation in your entire life. And that's, I think, the purpose of why you want to have them take the training is, but I'm going to prepare them for the fight because guess what? Fight's coming. If they're going to be working with you, fight's coming, you know, you know, because what you're doing is important and, yeah. and you take it seriously. And it's, you know, and, and you want warriors, you want Spartans, you know, Absolutely. not social workers. You know what? You don't even hold someone's hand, you, you know, and what do the families want? A fighter, right? Right. They want, they want a fighter. You know, they want, we need to be kind. We need to be compassionate. We need to have uh, boatloads of empathy and understanding for that perspective. But at the end of the day, they want a warrior. That's what they want. And most of them haven't experienced it. No. They haven't no, They need a knight in shining armor to show up and slay that fire-breathing dragon that has been at the door and at the gates for years. And no one's, no champion came forward. Being a champion doesn't mean you win. It means you stood up and you fought the good fight. And right. you had the skills to do it. You had the skills to do it. No. Yes. Brandon, thank you for your time and sitting in the chair for an hour. I and know. This, and, and only you know how hard this is for me. <laughs> it is hard for you. <laughs> I have to Sorry. call my wife and tell Amy to come and she's an investigator as well. Tell her to come in and take the handcuffs off so I can actually get out of the chair. <laughs> I appreciate you doing it. Thank you. And thank you for everything you do for the profession. Thank you. You too. Peace out. <laughs> I want to thank Brandon Perrin for taking time out of his very busy schedule to review the interview tape. Brandon's observations were eye-opening. I am sure when you watch Aaron's interview tape, you will watch using Brandon's techniques. Without Warning podcast is about the investigative side to cases. It is a roller coaster and messy. You never know what you're going to get, what you hear, what witness will come forward, what tip will be shared. If you have any information you want to share on the podcast regarding the deaths of Katie, River, or Aiden, email tips at sheilawysaki.com or call one 888 599-0008. Join Patreon and crowdsource justice with private investigator Sheila Waisaki. If you or someone you know is dealing with suicidal ideation or is actively thinking about taking their life, please call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Without Warning Podcast, Season 3 Investigation, Derailed. Executive Director, executive producer and host Sheila Waisaki and announcer Tim Evans. Thank you to Lori Morrison of the podcast The Unlovely Truth. Thank you to Danielle Birch, Chelsea Sarkowskis and private investigator Jenny Moore for their boots to the ground passionate laser focused research. <laughs>